Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I've been writing business plans and spent time thinking about it, but at some point you then just have to take that leap of faith and believe that it's, it's going to happen. And I think that's that element of founders. You can say they all have to be a bit crazy because that leap is hard. Catherine McConnell is the founder of Bright, that's Bright with an E on the end, an online marketplace she built that offers finance solutions for ordinary households to get into renewable energy in their homes by helping them more easily pay for solar panels or batteries. In just five years, Bright has rocketed from nothing to recently hitting $1 billion in finance applications for solar panels and the like put through their platform. Back in 2015, when Bright was just an idea, Catherine took a huge gamble. She not only refinanced her Sydney home to provide initial funding to back her startup, but she and her husband Peter had so much faith in Catherine's business plan that they cut back their own family living expenses, including taking their kids out of private school and putting them into the local public schools to invest those savings into her new business. Talk about taking a punt and backing yourself. Since then, she's also had some heavy hitters backing her. Atlassian billionaires Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar have invested heavily in Bright and its future. To date, Bright is now one of the largest and fastest growing financiers of rooftop solar in this country. 14 years working in asset finance at Macquarie Bank did school Catherine well, but with Bright, she stole a march on the big banks by grabbing opportunities that the big players just could not capitalise on. Hear how she did that. Hope you enjoy Catherine McConnell. Catherine McConnell, welcome to Build It Thou Come podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Lovely to be here. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Helen. Oh, that's great. Well, now you are the founder and creative force behind Bright, Bright with an E. It's a green energy financier, essentially for the home, but it's via a digital platform. How do you describe what Bright is for those who are uninitiated? Well, I would have said today that we're a point of sale finance platform that helps people access a sustainable home, but we have a few new things that we're building at the moment. So that's about to get added to. We've identified that finance isn't the only thing that's stopping people from accessing a sustainable home. There are a few other things that they're needing help with. And so what we have done is we have received our license to become an energy retailer. So we'll be able to help people with all of their home energy needs if they want to be powered with solar and batteries. Right. So that's big picture, you know, one sentence. What does it actually mean? How do you help people access what renewable energy in their home, green energy? So what we do is to date, we've helped them pay for it. And so at the point of sale, the biggest blocker has been, I don't have a way to pay. So how we've helped them to date is we've provided two credit products. So one is a buy now, pay later payment plan, and the other is a loan. And so we've helped people spread that cost over three, five, seven years. And then when it's all paid down, they have outright ownership of the assets. 
Right. And then with your new growth goals or are they actual products yet? Well, we're piloting this year, so it's all all pretty secret, but next year we'll be going to market with some new products. And so what will happen is homes that want to generate their own energy with, with solar and also a battery, they'll be able to have one single bill where they'll be able to pay bright for all of their home energy needs. So that'll be paying back the solar, the batteries and any other energy that they need. They won't have to go to a separate energy retailer. They'll be able to make that to us in that single payment on the single interface. Right. So you're actually with the new product, you're trying to sort of do away with what Energy Australia, is that right? Yeah, effectively, because the customers now that buy solar and pay with Bright, they may be generating about 50% of their energy from their solar panels. And then the rest of it, they're having to go to Energy Australia or another company to be able to pay for the rest. So we'll be able to effectively look after their whole of home energy needs. Wow, that's pretty amazing growth in such a short time. But let's stick for the moment with what you offer now. You said you've got essentially two sort of products, a buy now, pay later product and a loan, a normal interest-bearing loan. And this is for bigger household renewable energy items, is it? So primarily what we've done to date, it is about 90% solar that we finance to date, but we also provide a finance solution for people wanting to buy home improvements. And so home improvements are, you know, everything ranging from heating, cooling, roofing and flooring. So essentially, you are offering credit to mainly householders to install mainly solar panels and batteries and I guess eventually move to electric vehicles? That's it. That's it. So we've announced this year that we're doing a pilot for electric vehicles and next year or at the end of this year, we'll be able to make that a broader public offering. That's quite extraordinary. Now, you have just landed or relatively recently landed a massive deal with the ACT government. Just give us a snapshot of Bright's success right now. How big are you? How many residential customers do you have? How many employees? Okay, so this week we'll be hitting a billion dollars of finance applications that have been put through the platform. A billion dollars of finance applications. So have you provided that billion dollars yet? No. So that's applications that have been submitted through the platform. So it's a smaller number of finance applications that have been approved, but that's applications through the platform. So approved is just over 800 and $820 million. That's extraordinary. And how many households? So we've got about 100,000 customers that we're servicing. The team last year was about 80 people, but we're now about 180 people in the office. And that number is growing next year to just under 300 people. So we've seen a really big growth of our team. It's just amazing to, to be part of this exciting journey. And so many of our best days lie ahead. Yeah. Catherine, now you have two sorts of customers, essentially, these residential householders, but you also have vendors, people who install the solar panels or install the blinds or the batteries. Is that right? How does that work? Yeah. So the vendors are effectively our distribution channel. So we go to market through uh, intermediaries or vendors and we help them at the point of sale by offering their customers a credit product. So our customer is the consumer or the household and vendors are our our distribution channel that we use to be able to access the household. Right. So how does the buy now, pay later finance work for household customers? Your website says, you know, someone can borrow $30,000 for 0% interest rate. 
Mm. So we have the two products. We have the interest-bearing loan and we have the the buy now, pay later, 0% interest product. And so the 0% interest product has a fee that's paid via the vendor. And so the vendor then provides that to the customer at their point of sale. And the price that's presented to the customer at the point of sale is all the customer will have to pay. There are no other charges other than the noted fees that the customer pays to us over time. You charge a fee to the vendor and they build that into their price. And then the fees for the customer is essentially 0% interest, but there are still, you know, it's essentially still a loan, isn't it? So how do customers repay it without fees to them mounting up? I presume you have late fees or account fees. So just going back to that first point, Helen, so the vendor has has many different inputs in their business. And so they have the raw materials, they have things like a CRM, they have wages, salaries, rent. And so we're just one of those inputs. And so all of those inputs obviously passed on to the customer in the form of margin. We're just one of those inputs. We've done different research with the customer and they then see, you know, a really transparent and easy to understand offering. And it is is 0% to the customer because they don't have to add interest on to to that purchase price. Yeah, they just see the fees that they have to make and yeah, there are no other interest costs that they have to pay. Do fees or can fees mount up like they do in the, you know, afterpays and the zip codes? Not as much as fees adding up in credit cards, but do they mount up with your product? No, because we have a cap on fees that a customer will pay if they're in arrears. So it's a $1.50 a week account keeping fee. It's $4.99 late payment fee. And then we've committed to a cap on the maximum amount in late payment fees that a customer can pay. The late fees are capped at $49.90 per calendar year. So the most we'll ever charge a customer is 10 amounts of that late payment fee. Right. And how long do people have before the late payment fees, before they're in arrears? I just want to highlight that it's not a source of our revenue. So less than 1% of our revenue comes from late payment fees. So in the BNPL study that was done with ASIC, we performed the best out of all the different BNPL participants. So 96% of customers and, and all transactions incur no missed payment fee. It's the lowest, equal lowest in the industry. So where does your revenue come from? In the interest-bearing loan, it comes from the customer. And in the the buy now, pay later product, 96% of that revenue comes from merchant fees, from the vendor paying a fee. So these days, what are your costs of funding? Can you give us an idea of that? Well, I can't really because we've accessed public debt markets. And so we issued our first public debt issuance last year. We did a sell down of $190 million of debt. And so there were seven different tranches of, of debt and it was a, a private pricing. But definitely the, the cost of funds has come down over time when I consider the first loans were written with the Macquarie, McConnell family home loan. So we've definitely been able to bring that cost of funds down over time. All right, we'll come back to that initial funding. But you have been growing very fast, as you alluded to before, since you began in what, late 2015? Just how fast have you grown since then? Because that's really not long. No, it's not. 2015 was was when I resigned and I hired my first person. So it was September 2015, I resigned and December 2015, I hired my first person and we went to market with a, with a product in October 2016. Wow. So when we went to market 
October 2016, I think I had six people who were working for Bright at that stage. So if I compared 2016 to, to 2021 now with about 180 people, the team's definitely grown, reaching you know close to a billion dollars now of applications submitted on the platform. It's definitely been a credible and and you know strong platform that's that's been built to accommodate that volume in a short period of time. Catherine, it's barely, well, it's not even five years since September 2016 when you actually launched the product. That's really extraordinary. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Yeah, it it, it definitely feels like a lot longer, I think. Um, (laughs) I'm sure it does. But do you have to pinch yourself to really say, even though you haven't written or approved all those loans, but to think that, you know, people want a billion dollars worth of financing from you is extraordinary. It is. It's extraordinary. And I just feel so grateful and so happy that I, I made that leap and made that decision to start Bright because we were solving a real problem in the industry. And what was that? The problem was the solar at the point of sale, there was a, a big friction and a blocker. Yeah. Meaning it was basically very expensive upfront costs to put solar panels on your roof. It was expensive, but also people knew you needed a a different way to pay. So it wasn't just that it was expensive. It was also that if they didn't commit to that purchase at that point of time, they'd walk away and they'd never make the purchase. So it was also around just making that happen at the moment when they had the idea that that they wanted to, to go ahead and buy solar. Where did the idea for Bright, the Bright idea, come from originally? I'm sure you that is certainly not the first time you um, have heard puns <laughs> on the name, but how did the idea come about? Well, Helen, it was a combination of work experience and personal experience. So I'd been in investment banking, specifically in Macquarie Bank, for about 14 years. So the last 11 years in equipment finance, asset finance. And it was there that I'd actually set up a a product for solar financing. And I did that for business customers and consumers. So I actually set set that product up and, and serviced that product. So I had a really deep understanding of the problem and credit products specifically to, to service the industry. So it was there I saw that there were some gaps in the market mm. and the products that, that banks were providing wouldn't be able to solve. At home, we had solar. In 2015, we got our first battery. And so I was definitely a personal believer that the industry was real, it was big, and this problem was, was real and, and, and needed to be solved. Yeah, it's interesting that you actually created a product a bit like yours from what you're saying at Macquarie Bank. So how did that develop then into a bigger idea? And and what did they think of you uh, kind of taking their idea? They weren't able to, to set up a business like Bright because of what now is called buy now, pay later, then was just called unregulated credit. Right. And, and so the perception of reputational risk was very high. Of course, to some people, it's still unregulated credit. Yeah, and I think that's the great success that we've had as an industry. I think as the the buy now, pay later participants have matured, we've been able to develop our own industry code of conduct under AFIA. We've done a lot of stakeholder engagement with politicians and with regulators and also with our customers. You know, we've been able to prove that it's it's a product that's loved. It's a product that is transparent. It adds value. I think that's one of the successes of the industry. 
Yeah, so that's interesting you say Macquarie at that time, even what, less than six years ago, couldn't get around this potential reputational damage of getting into the unregulated credit area. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's evidenced by other banks haven't been rushing into this space with a credit product. CBA has recently launched StepPay. So that's the the first product that's come onto the market. Mindful that that I've been, you know, in the market for five years and Afterpay and Zip have been seven or eight years. So it has taken a while for a, a bank to enter the space. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. In fact, I was uh, I'm going to ask you, you know, you've entered a space that really banks should have always been in offering credit, offering, you know, small loans to people. But I guess what you're saying is they were really stymied. They couldn't get into your area and it left a huge opportunity for others. I think what fintechs often do is they're able to navigate regulatory grey space a lot better than incumbents who don't have the same risk appetite. And I think we're able to do that through technology. I think we're able to do that through like iterating, putting measures in place and iterating and iterating. And I think that's a, a huge advantage that we've been able to do in others in this space to navigate that risk. Catherine, what do you think you learnt in that period you worked at Macquarie Group, Macquarie Bank, that you brought with you to your startup? Oh, I learnt so much and it was a fantastic training ground. I think they're an entrepreneurial organisation at their heart and a concept of freedom within boundaries, how to navigate and understand the importance of risk framework and also the framework of how I set up the business, not just with risk and credit, but also the funding structure. Absolutely, that learning was all from my time at Macquarie. So in a sense, what sort of research did you do to know that this idea or to know if this idea would fly? I guess that's the the bit where you have to take a blind leap of faith. It was that combination. I felt I had the technical experience. I'd, I'd been doing this for a long time and, and I, I knew that I had created the products and the personal experience, that was the passion that came in and made my heart feel that this opportunity was real. And it was something that I, I wanted to enable. So at some point, it then I'd been writing business plans and spent time thinking about it. But at some point, you then just have to take that crazy leap and that leap of faith and believe that it's, it's going to happen. And I think that's that element of founders. You can say they all have to be a bit crazy because that leap is hard. Yeah, but at its heart, Really, I guess your product idea was a pay-by-installments product. Now, weren't there other products on the market that could give that to consumers like a small bank loan or even paying by credit card or maybe using Afterpay or Zip? The area that we're focused on is very niche. So we're focused on the home and we're focused on vendors. And so our transaction, average transaction price is a lot higher than a zipper and afterpay. Right. I don't recall what the average number is these days, but it's less than $200. Yeah, yeah. Whereas ours is about seven dollars to $8,000 average transaction price. It's a different type of product and we're solving problems for both the distribution channel, the vendor, as well as the customer. And the, the transaction, how that sale goes ahead, other information that we provide to the customers, we have a marketplace. So other support we give to the customer is very focused on increasing their confidence in the industry and helping them make that sale. 
Going back to Macquarie, so you decided to take the plunge, decided to leave a no doubt well-paying job to start this idea, to back yourself, or did you keep your day job for a little bit and start bright in your spare time? Well, there was a period of about six months where I started thinking I would write a blog and I'd help people buy solar and batteries. And so it started off as a blog and it turned into a business plan at the end of the six months. And then it it was really just a business plan and then it became, well, maybe I should do this business plan. So as 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 soon as that idea came in my head, I resigned so, yeah, definitely left and, and full throttle, full focus on Bright. Wow. And what was your funding source back then right in the beginning? Did, you said before <laughs> the family mortgage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I have a fantastic partner, my husband, Peter. And so before I resigned, we, we talked a lot about how we would support the business. And we had a million dollars that we were able to do a refinance on our house on the Northern Beaches. Wow. And so we refinanced the home and, and took a million dollars of equity out of the home and we we talked about expenses that we had in our family so we we cut down on cleaner and the lawnmower and and actually decided to also take the kids out of private school put them in the local public school and so we made a lot of big decisions and and, oh they um, are big decisions wow (laughs) so cut our lifestyle down it was a huge punt is what you say yeah I know and my I think my husband thinks there's a part of me that's crazy but He was my backer, you know, he was my backer and believed in what I said I could do. And Your emotional backer as much as your, you know, financial partner. (laughs) Exactly. And it was the emotional support that I needed because I think it was the the confidence that I really needed to resign and him giving me the confidence that as a team, we could, we could navigate this as a family. That was what I needed. So it was a big jump. And I, when I look back at the success that we've had to date, I think my proudest moment really is making making that leap to give it a go. Yeah. Now, just to divert for a moment, you mentioned your husband, Peter McConnell. As I understand it, he also runs his own startup business, Comtrack. Well, he's not. He started a business. He's still involved there, but he works for Newgate Now Communication. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So he's he's gone back into full-time work, but he did have a stint. He was at Woolworths on the, the management board, and then he left that, started a startup. So that was crazy for a few years when we were both in this space. Oh, my goodness. Now he's back in corporate, so few. So has he actually ever been involved in your business? No. No. So what was the first crucial step you really needed to work out? You you had your access to a million bucks, which is a huge amount of money to put into a startup idea from scratch. But what was the this first crucial step? Was it, you know, where you were going to get the loans and the financing? Was it getting a website up? Was it working out how the product would actually work? Was it getting the vendors on board? Well, it was actually the tech, so how I was going to build the platform because I had a really clear view on how the product would work and the risk and the credit and how I'd sort out the funding and but I I haven't got a a tech background. And so it was really thinking through what type of coding and platform. And so hiring that first person for me was someone who was an engineer. And that was my biggest, biggest area that I was at, at risk and exposed on. Yeah. So he was a computer engineer who what helped you build this mobile app, this platform? 
Yeah, I hired him as an engineer and shortly after we were able to hire another person and, and helped build the app that we have for the vendors, an app for the consumer, a portal that the vendors can use to, to manage applications and invoices and payments and then the website as well and then a lot of systems that we have behind the scenes that support you know all the administration of the business. Are those two employees, those first employees, are they still with you? No, they're not actually. One was with, the first one was with me for about three and a half years, which in this type of business would equate to 10 years of another company. <laughs> yeah. Were you doing all this from home or did you get premises? Yeah, from day one, I was at Stone and Chalk, the fintech hub in the city. So I really wanted to transition from the office at, at Macquarie Bank in Martin Place and then on the Monday walk into an office and I mean I still dressed with my pearls and my Macquarie Bank outfit but I was serious you know this was a job yes you had your corporate your corporate look on <laughs> yeah. and I was I was going to work there was no no break just straight into it no so what did the stone and chalk hub that fintech hub give you just for people who may not know what it is but what did it help you with it was fantastic because i was used to working in an environment with teams and collaborating with people and so going into an environment where everyone had this crazy idea and belief that they were starting something that was going to change the world was the environment that i needed so just that like-mindedness was really important Another thing that I really loved was there were people there that were setting up credit products. And I remember when I was negotiating certain things with a credit agency or with, you know, to set up my bank account, I was able to to, to run around to the different people and see what deal they got and, you know, hear their feedback on things to avoid. And so it was just, it was just great on so many fronts to be with those like-minded people. Well, I imagine, you know, not all startups get that sort of opportunity to make connections, hear from others in the same space, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think the benefit of co-working venues for startups are just fantastic. I think there are so many around now in different cities. The one I was at was a specialised focus on finance. Yeah. But I think just being in that environment would, would help. Take your mind back. Can you remember the first residential customer who used your product? The first person who really thought, I want to go with you to finance, you know, better renewable energy in my home. And, and what was that like? The first customer we did was a test one, my husband. So that's a related party. <laughs> that's cheating. <laughs> so but that was one where we actually, I sat next to him and I did the sell job. We bought another battery and I got him to complete it and, and we taped it. And, you know, he fortunately got approved with his credit. So that was good. But that was a related party. So a non-related party, I remember the first vendor that we signed up, they were in Canberra when they put through their first applications. And I don't remember the name, but all of our first customers, we've named one of our meeting rooms after them. So I think it was R Raja and Raja was short for a longer name of the first customer. Right. So that was a vendor who brought you customers. Well, it's only a, a 3% or so of our customers at this stage are, are direct, but primarily vendors are acquiring right. our customers. And so they would introduce us at the point of sale to the customer. We'd then do direct credit assessment on the customer and then have that direct relationship with the customer from that point where we'd be exposed and, and known to them. So you do do credit checks? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you take on the credit risk, don't you? Yeah, we we do. We have a fantastic reputation and track record on very low number of customers that, that are late in their payments. It's interesting that the type of customer that uses Bright has a very high credit score, very high amount of disposable income. And why it's so different from other buy now, pay later providers is because our purchase, it's a needed and considered purchase. So if you compare it to a purchase that might be for earrings or uh, shoes and you're walking into a retail store, it's quite different to a family who's considering making an $8,000 purchase that's going to save them money and, and cut the cost of their energy bill. We get a really strong credit customer. It's fantastic that it also results in, you know, only a small number of customers miss, miss repayments. Right. When did you go live with your mobile app and, and what is the importance? I guess that's the whole foundation. You sell your product online. Yeah. So October, when we started, we had the app live. And so what happens is we have a process where if a vendor, like a solar retailer wants to use Bright, they sign up to us, we do an accreditation on them. And so not not everyone gets accepted to be able to use our product. And so we do an accreditation on them. Um, We look at their financials, their credit, their reputation. And if that business gets approved, we give them training and then they're able to download our app. And we train their sales agents in the business and then they're able to, to offer us to their customers at the point of sale. So there's a lot that goes in before they download the app. And then once they download it, they do some you know further training on the app. And, and then that's their tool of trade, basically, the mobile phone. They're with their customers. They pull out the phone. You know, when, they, when they're closing a sale, the customer wants finance. So it takes about two minutes to do a credit application when they're with their customer. And the payment plan can get decisioned in, in only a couple of seconds. So the customer can have pretty quick knowledge of if they've got a way to pay. And so that's, uh, you know, that's all done over the mobile app. Catherine, what is the most challenging thing in the scale-up, both over the last, say, year, 18 months, but sort of right now as well? I think it is definitely people issues. And when you're a smaller business, you're working on problems that, that everyone is really aware of because it's, you know, there's not many people. But as you get bigger, you start to have layers between myself and, and other people. And so I think that's a, a bigger problem. The frameworks that you set up to be able to support collaboration, to support the velocity that you had in the beginning are really important that you spend time getting those in place. Otherwise, you really risk becoming a corporate just like any other company and not having that advantage that that sets you up for success in the beginning. Let's just step back a bit, Catherine McConnell. What was your life like growing up? Did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Were your parents in business? Were they in finance? Yeah, my name's maiden name's Kulikov. So I'm Russian, Ukrainian family. So my dad was a refugee and mum was an immigrant. She was born here, family came from the Ukraine via Germany. So I was effectively a first generation Australian. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so not not entrepreneurs or innovators. Mum was working in a nursing home and dad was an electrician and they were just really, really hard workers. I, I think what I learned from them was the value of hard work, the value of empathy and understanding the importance of household affordability. I, I think that's at the core of what, what Bright does, you know, understanding our customers, supporting their problems and, and helping them with, you know, how to have a more affordable home. 
So what was your central idea that you wanted to achieve when you left Macquarie with this idea? At its core, it was my excitement around batteries. So I was the, the first of the first generation batteries to be installed. In a, in a private home? In a private home. So yeah, the power wall hadn't arrived yet in Australia. So the first and we'd just been through a solar boom where we'd had a, a state government feed-in tariff to provide mm. support and, you know, big uptake of solar. So solar for me made sense and I could see that, that people were jumping on that bandwagon. But just just batteries were so intriguing, so intriguing that, that people could localise their energy generation and the energy storage. And I'm a gardener, so I love gardening. I love growing my own veggies and, you know, picking them and eating them. And and that sense of control that I have from doing that and pride that I can give it to my family and, and be so proud that, you know, I've done it all myself. I got that with my solar and my battery. The fact that I was generating my own power and storing it and powering the home. And for me, that was just so exciting. And I thought that that was something that all Australians would want to feel. And that is what motivated me. I just thought batteries are going to be the future. They're going to be big. And I just felt that for the first time, all of my skills could be drawn together and do something that would make a dent in that. Yeah. So was this idea, would you say from the very beginning, was it always a big vision or was it just, oh, I'll just do a few loans to put solar panels on a few rooftops and see how we go? Oh, Helen, I'd never have left Macquarie if it was never going to be a big vision. I would have, you know, it was a great job. Yeah, I had yeah. a great job. I yeah. paid well, you had bonuses and didn't have to have all that, that stress. So, and, I, and I think that's one of the things that actually would frustrate me because I'd bump into people when I started and they'd say, oh, you're starting a business. It must be great. You get to spend more time with your kids. And I was thinking, no, 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 you don't understand. Like this is going to be a big business. It it was big from day one. It's it's a big problem that we're solving. Can all Australian households, I mean, let's face it, you had a a well-paying job, but can people on low and middle incomes embrace this as well? Over time, the source of generation, so the site of generation is changing. And it's it's changing because of a few different reasons. It's changing because alternative energy fuels are becoming more viable. And so if you compare the cost of a battery and a key component of a you know a battery is lithium iron. And over time that cost is just decreasing. And it's decreasing because more batteries are getting made, more batteries are in EVs. And as that cost comes down, the product becomes more viable and more cost comparable to things like coal. And that's just happening. It, it, it's happening and it's happening faster than, you know, people are forecasting. And so it is real that as that comes down, and we saw that with solar. So I remember, you know, 10 years ago, that the what's called a payback. So the time it takes to pay back the cost of your solar panels. I saw that when it was about 10 years and now it's about three, four years. And so solar has a warranty life of 20 years. And so someone can get solar, the savings will pay back the price of that system in less than five years. And then they've effectively got 15 years that they're making a revenue stream from those solar panels. And that that will happen with batteries as well. It's not here yet. The costs don't all stack up. But what we're going to be doing in our new energy uh, energy retail launch and is is going to start to contribute to that cost coming down. 
Catherine, where did this risk-taking, this backing yourself come from and, and how much were you willing to risk? It sounded like you were willing to risk a fair bit to back yourself into this idea. I just think it's that gene that founders have where we're a bit crazy because I just had this adamant belief that it was going to work and it was just so black and white for me. It was so black and white that it was going to work. And so, you know, I definitely bet on the NRL. (laughs) I love my sports bet account. I am comfortable with risk, but I just felt that this was a certainty. And so the risk-taking behavior, you know, I'm not a bungee jumper. (laughs) I don't, I don't do crazy things. So it's not, it's not, not the person who I am, but this didn't feel like a big threat or a big risk. It was just, could I pull it all together in the time that I needed to before my money ran out? That was my risk. For how long did that first million bucks that you got from refinancing your own home and your children's home, how long did that last you? (laughs) A year. Oh, wow. You went through a million bucks in the first year. Yeah. So the type of business that you set up has a lot of costs in systems and software. And because I knew this was going to be a big business, I did things right from the very beginning. I I got amazing legal advice, accounting advice and models and frameworks I set up were for this to be a multi-billion dollar business. And so I, I kind of invested from day one in a really strong foundation. So you did eventually go the venture capital investment route. Why did you choose venture capital? Well, I did a seed round first. So I got 33 friends, family and different people coming in on my first round. And then the next round, I got Mike Cannon-Brooks and his wife, Annie, uh, their family office coming in. Yep. And then the third round, I got um, Airtree uh, Venture Capital VC coming in. It was great getting Mike's family office in Brock. I have just been huge supporters. So tell me, how has Mike Cannonbrooks and his wife, how have they helped you? What have they brought to you and helped you with? In 2016, I was introduced to them. We agreed that year that they'd come on and start supporting me. So it was only a year after I left Macquarie that they came on and started backing me. Wow. That was the first time they invested money? Well, I'd actually already closed my seed round and so they right. they'd missed out on that round, but they started investing debt because I, I needed to raise a lot of money. I needed to raise debt to be able to fund my loans. And I took a decision from day one that I wanted to own the loan book. And so I didn't want to be a broker. I wanted to set up my own lending vehicles and own my own credit policy and, and be in control of, of that. And so they, they came in and helped me with my first funding trust and gave me money to, to put in that, that debt vehicle. And then the following year, they came on and, and led my first Series A round. Yeah. And then they've had another investment of, what, $78 million in more the more recent round? Yeah. So I raised about $150 million so far. And that last $100 million round, they came in with about $80, $80 million to support the company. They led that Series C round. And how much have you raised in total? $150 million of equity and $550 million of debt. Ah, oh, that's just extraordinary. And are you still the major shareholder? No. No, I'm not the major shareholder anymore. So I'm still founder, chair, CEO, but that amount of money in a, a short period of time, you definitely dilute. However, I was really happy to do that because I, I want this to be big. 
And I'd rather focus on getting the capital I need to grow than having a, a focus on myself as being the key shareholder. Yeah. So I was really grateful to, to get that capital and, you know, really appreciative of their other, other support outside of the capital. So did Scott Farquhar and his family funds invest as well? Yeah, Kim Jackson and her, her husband, Scott Farquhar, they came on in the Series B round. I think that was in 2018. And they, they also support me on the debt side of the business as well as the equity. So I'm assuming that has absolutely turbocharged to have all these VC funds and their support provided to you. Absolutely. The support is not just the capital that they give. It's navigating the industry. It's helping my team. So Airtree, for instance, have a service where so my chief people officer or chief finance officer can network with their peers in all of the portfolio companies that, that Airtree have invested in. So they provide you know great support and yeah, helping us, a lot of it's pattern recognition. So things that I'm going through, they've seen before and they're able to help me navigate that. Right. And do you have contact with, say, either Mike or one of the seniors from Airtree Ventures, Daniel Petrie? What do you learn from them? Do they contact you individually? Yeah, absolutely. Mike's generous with his time and experience. So Mike's definitely uh, available. And yeah, Daniel Petrie, he's not sitting on my board. We did just catch up just before the lockdown. He came into the office and was able to, actually, I was able to talk to him about a few problems I was facing that day. And, you know, he very graciously was able to dive in and roll his sleeves up and help me think through them. So yeah, the team are available. How hard was it to get the loan book to kind of own that yourself, to get securitization from banks? So that that was something I hadn't done at Macquarie, but I'd watched businesses do it. <laughs> so I knew I, I knew kind of what to do and I just that was where I paid for, for different advice to be able to get yeah. structures set up. And it was complex, you know, it was costly setting up different structures. And I, I don't think a lot of people have been able to do that very well. So I know other companies have, have set up similar businesses and they didn't set these structures up from day one. And as a result, they haven't been able to, to bring their cost of funds down, you know, as much as I've been able to. And I imagine that, you know, you've got your platform, you've developed the app, you've got this fantastic digital product, but how critical is innovation to your business still? And and how do you manage that now? Well, innovation is absolutely critical. And one of the values that we have is think big, stay green. And so it's knowing that, you know, we're going to get bigger, but still how we stay innovative and green and hungry and fresh to new ideas and, and new ways of working and doing things. So it's something that's at the forefront. So it's a value. It's, it's something that we think about. We've just hired a, a lovely person to be our first head of research and innovation, Yuron. And so it's starting to, you know, put specific roles in the business now that, that make sure it's not just a adjunct function to everything we do, but it has to be at the forefront of, of how we grow the business. Yeah. Catherine, how close do you think failure has been? And is it ever very far from the surface for founding a startup, a fintech startup? I have had that sick feeling in my stomach many times where I just feel, you know, you're an inch from things falling apart or not being able to juggle all the balls. So it's happened. You know, I felt 
that many times. Yeah, it's definitely real. Be it, you know, running short of capital when my million dollars was running out or, Mm. you know, certain situations, you know, within the company. But yeah, there's a lot of complexity that you have to juggle and navigate. So how do you deal with coming close to failure, coming close to perhaps falling over? So I work harder, I guess. Now that I have more capital, I can be aware of the biggest risks in the business and make sure they're really well resourced. And so one of the, my biggest risks was was risk. And you know, I was really fortunate to bring on an amazing lady in the business very early on and you know, have her guide and grow and, and manage that part of the business. So yeah, that's what I I try and do, identify the risk and, and try and find someone who's so much better than me to be able to help navigate that for me. When COVID hit in what March, April 2020, how did it impact your business back then? How did it, did it terrify you? Were you panic stricken? Yeah, well, I, I remember at the end of February, I was reading a lot of newspaper articles about Wuhan and doing my own research. And so at the, the start of March, before the lockdown happened in Sydney, I'd actually made some decisions that, that I, I thought things were going to get really difficult. And I'd, I'd spoken to my board. We went and raised more capital. So before lockdown happened, we'd spoken to the, the funders and banks and increased our credit lines. And we also made a decision to unfortunately reduce our staff by about 20% so we could reduce our operational expenses. And then it was only a week later, actually, once we'd done all of that, that we got the news that Sydney was going into lockdown and things started to make sense to the team why we'd made these decisions. So that was one, um, you don't always get it right, but but that was one big risk that I took and it, it ended up being right. The team were able to work from home. So we were really lucky compared to to some people whose jobs don't enable that. We have some team in Manila and they also had very tough lockdowns. They they had a military enforced lockdown. Yeah, they were all closed down, weren't they? All the call centres and various operations like that. We saw it happening over there and we were rushing around buying people laptops and sticks to be able to access the internet, SIM cards or sticks to be able to access the internet over there. And so we, we managed to be able to get, you know, a group of our team over there able to work from home before the lockdowns happened there. Right. So what happened to sales and finance applications? Yeah, so we saw an, an immediate drop. What mm. was more interesting than sales to me was customers ringing in and and saying, what happens if we can't make our repayments? And so we took a view that that um, we would give immediate relief of 30 or 60 days to anyone who rang up. We put a note on our website, anyone who's experiencing hardship or um, concerned, they might experience hardship, you know, automatically, no late payment fees and we'll, we'll put a pause on your repayments. Mm. And what we found is when they got in contact with us 30 or 60 days later, the majority of those um, people were fine to pay. Only a small number of them were, were in a hardship situation and couldn't. So we had a dip in sales and a, and a dip in customers repaying. But by June, we were you know back on track. Sales were, were close, to, close to back to budget and number of customers that were in late payments was, was close to budget as well. What did you learn about yourself, do you reckon, as a leader during COVID? What I learned was still to trust my instinct, but to also trust my team's instinct. So I think at the start of the business, it was always just trust my instinct. And I think what I learned in COVID was continue to do that, but also, you know, you've got an amazing team around you. So start to rely on them 
even more yeah. uh, because we're all in it together. And and I really got that another value, brighter together. I really got this feeling that, that the team really meshed together very well. And I, and I had a strong sense that we really were all in this together. Catherine, is bright profitable yet? And if not, when do you think that will happen? Well, interestingly, Helen, last year we were on a pathway to profitability. So last year we were due to break even this year, actually. But we made a decision last year that we wanted to go deeper and and go back to day zero again and invest in that that new business I mentioned, invest in solving the problems for batteries, becoming a retailer and, and setting up new capabilities. So when mm-hmm. we did that, we took the large amount of money and we're investing for growth again. So we don't see a plan to break even for the next next couple of years. I guess what we were facing was, you know, if we became profitable this year, we, we'd have a dividend and we could either invest that in the business or pay it to our shareholders. But we were also facing, we don't want to be a dividend business. We want to be a growth business and we have a lot of opportunities for problems we can solve. And that was the path we chose to follow. Do you subscribe to the view that particularly in fintech or or most digital businesses, get customer traction first? That's so much more important than profitability in the early days? I think it's customer traction plus a pathway to profitability. Right. Like I don't think you can be naive to say it's just customer traction because then you're not considering the cost of acquisition or the lifetime value. And I think you need to consider, you know, is there a pathway to profitability? What would that look like? And if you can see that, I think it's okay to to have sunk costs and, you know, be unprofitable for many years if you're always in growth mode. But I don't think that your costs of acquisition for customers should always be high with no pathway and just hope that one day it's going to make money. Yes, right. And of course, Catherine, in fintech startup land, there are so few women founders. How do you feel about that? And why do you think that is? So I I feel incredibly honoured that I'm one. I think it's really sad there aren't more. When I reflect on my time in investment banking, I was the only female in my team for 11 years. So the pool that, that you're kind of trying to pick a founder from is very small. And then it's even smaller for a female that has the experience that then has the financial ability to take the risk on. And so I was really lucky that, that my husband and I had the home, we'd saved money, we had great jobs, we had the ability for me to go for a year without a salary. And I think that's the, the biggest inhibitor that stops females from becoming female founders, particularly in, in, in finance. Well, do you see easy ways to change that? I think firstly, it's around fixing up females in the finance industry. Yeah. And I, like I, I think Shamara at Macquarie Bank is doing an amazing job uh, there with helping support females yeah. in, you know, in, in that organization. So I, I do see things changing. And I think as far as that confidence, there are different programs in place that are starting to, you know, help females with an idea, with some um, some grant or some startup funding. I've seen like a federal government and a state government initiative. And I, I think those things are useful as well to help take that risk off. Just a couple of quick questions now. They don't require long answers unless you want to. Yeah. Have you had time to develop a business motto or set of values? You, you mentioned a couple earlier in the interview. Yeah, so our mission is to make every home sustainable. Our purpose is to power a brighter future today. And so powering a brighter future today is to bring the future forward, like to make batteries happen sooner, make solar happen sooner, you know, sustainable homes happen sooner. 
and our values that we live by, we've got five of them. So it's deserve the customer, brighter together, call the ball, be human, and think big, stay green. What's call the ball? I love that one. (laughs) So these were values that we were living. So they weren't aspirational when we codified them. And so call the ball comes back to my CFO in the team. And he'd always say, have you got the ball? Have you got the ball? And it's around high-performing teams. It's around collaboration and communication. So, you know, if you throw the ball to someone and, you know, I've got it, I'm running with it. And, you know, if there's a point where you can't carry it, you kind of throw it back. And the other person says, I've got the ball. I'm going to run with it. I won't let you down. So it's around that that teamwork and and, and high-performing teams. That's fantastic. What is the biggest thing you've learned so far on this journey, which is still very new for you, this uh, startup (laughs) founder journey to build your business? Yeah, it's just every day I just learn about people effectively. So Bright Success has been because we've been able to have amazing people work for us, create something from nothing and every day service our customers. And and because of that, you know, we continue to get more customers. And so for me, my biggest learning has been around how I support people, how I, you know, lead them effectively. And, you know, to lead is to serve. So it's really around how I support my team and and how I get better at that because I've never managed anyone. I think I've managed one person before. So I've not had experience in doing this. It's all on the job. For me, that's something I want to be great at. And that's my biggest area of continual learning. What's the toughest thing you've had to do in this startup journey? It's tough when I have to tell people that they have to get off the train because the next part of the journey isn't for them. That's really, really hard because I I like to think of myself as a nice person and I like to think of the people that have worked with me, uh, uh, friends, not just colleagues. And when you have to do something like that, it really contradicts lots of emotions and values that you have. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Be it a book, a cause, I am still obsessed with gardening, actually. (laughs) um, Fantastic in lockdown. Yeah, so I've bought a whole lot of seeds and I'm trying to germinate them all from seed to get ready for spring planting. So I've bought 100 packets of seed and I'm just really obsessed with watching them try and grow faster because I'm keeping them in the sun and trying to make them pretend it's spring when it's really winter. (laughs) And I'm reading a lot about how to make them grow faster. Fantastic. What have you loved about your journey? I've loved that people have joined me on the journey and that my chaos or my sense of urgency or for all my failings and flaws, they've decided that they will join me and that they also share this vision to increase the uptake of sustainable homes. So I've loved that. Oh, that's so good. And finally, what advice might you give to someone who would love to try and do what you're doing, pursue their own idea, do a startup? I I think it is that at some point you've got to jump off the edge and you've got to leave safety and you've got to back yourself. And, And no one can ever make you do that. But I think if you've done the work and you really think it's going to stack up, at some point you have to take the leap. And I would love to be that person who's shouting to say, take the leap, take the leap. You know, it it can work. Catherine McConnell, founder and CEO of Bright. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. 
Thank you so much, Helen. I loved having the time with you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.